Hi, this is Verity Bly and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Relations Society podcast. Today I'm speaking with Edward Lucas, senior editor at The Economist and author of The New Cold War on Russian power politics and cyberphobia on digital security. Ed, what I find particularly fascinating about your career is that it's come almost full circle. You reported from the Soviet bloc in the 1980s and 90s and witnessed its collapse and re-emergence after the Cold War. And you argue in your books that following the war on terror, the West took its eye off the ball when it comes to Eastern Europe. And we're arguably paying the price for that today. Russia is now once again at the centre of the international security scape in what you describe as a new Cold War. So I'd find it interesting to track those developments against your career, starting at the beginning when you were a reporter in Eastern Europe for The Economist and other newspapers. What was that like, please? Well, first of all, I think you've encapsulated my argument really well, so I hardly need to repeat it. Um, when, even when I was at university, I was very involved in the um, what we then used to call the captive nations of Eastern Europe. And so I was running a thing called Student Solidarity with Solidarity at my university, which was the LSE. And all through the 80s, I was, um, even when I was a journalist based in London, I was very worried about the, um, I was very worried about the, distance behind the Iron Curtain and human rights there and what we could do to help. I studied um, at a Polish university very briefly but learnt basic Polish there and then as soon as the opportunity came to be the correspondent for the um, BBC covering the GDR, the Soviet Occupied Zone of Germany as others would call it, based in Berlin, so I took that. Um, Then I moved to Czechoslovakia and then from there on to the Baltic states which were just emerging to to statehood again after the Soviet occupation. But I think the answer to your question is that I really listened to what people were telling me. And although part of the story was yippee, we're free again, another part of the story, which the West was much less willing to listen to, was watch out, we're not done yet. Um, People were very worried about how whether democracy had really put down deep roots in Russia. And we had elections, but elections aren't the same as democracy. Um, they were also worried about Russian imperialism. They weren't sure that Russia was really going to be a good neighbour in the future. And it was those worries which um, I think were, in, were prescient and justified, which the West ignored, with the result we're now in the mess that we are now. And among the the people that you spoke to, what was the atmosphere like? And particularly coming um, as a Western reporter and perhaps an outsider, um, what did you gauge of the general atmosphere? Well, and there was a climate of fear. And I remember um, when I was a student in Poland going to uh, a, an underground mass for the... Um, it was a solidarity mass with a solidarity... Um, emblem on the altarpiece, um, on the altar cloth. And I remember going up to the afterwards and trying to talk to the priest, and he just said, I can't. And he ran off. I mean, literally, he said, Musim Uciekac, which is, I have to run in Polish. And, um, and I thought, yeah, he'd got enough. Yeah, he had this little bit of freedom, which was to have the mass. If he started hanging out with a Western, um, with a Westerner, that freedom might go. And so I was always very aware of the price that people would pay for having contact with mm. someone like me. Um, and that's still the case to some extent. You know, I mean, friends of mine in Russia have been have actually been killed for their activities. And there are some things that I do that could endanger um, people living in authoritarian regimes. And that still worries me. Um, I suppose the other thing that um, really struck me was the way in which the 
people could see things that I couldn't see and smell things that I couldn't smell, make sense of things I couldn't make sense of. And so what would seem to me to be the very confusing environment of a sort of post-Soviet country. And my local friends would say, well, don't you realise that's the Russians doing that? That's organised crime. That's why it's happening. It's not coincidental. And this ability to sort of see patterns in what was happening made me very humble because I realised as a West that a lot of this stuff I just don't get and I should listen to the people who do get it. No, that's fascinating. And um, you've mentioned that you learnt Polish in Krakow. Just how important was knowing the local language to accurately reporting the developments on the ground? Well, I think, I mean, there are brilliant foreign correspondents who do everything in English. Um, but I think that language skills help in many ways. One is, um, if you're really good at a language, reading it means you can pick up the nuances, which sometimes are almost untranslatable. Um, even speaking it quite badly helps you establish a kind of personal rapport with people. So I have many friends who speak what they call roadblock Arabic, which is enough Arabic to get them through a roadblock. They wouldn't go on television and you know, speak in classical Arabic in the sort of high-flown way that's needed for broadcast media, but they, you know, what they have helps. Um, so I think there are, there are many different ways of, of knowing a language and many different purposes that it's put to. Um, I think what's changed is that the functional fluency which you needed in the days of the Iron Curtain has gone because you can actually get around perfectly well just speaking English. These countries have done amazingly well in, in acquiring English and other foreign languages. Um, so I don't. I find I don't use my um, Lithuanian or my um, Polish or my Czech very much because in most of the context I'm in, the people I'm with speak English way better than I speak those languages. Um, but um, I still am very glad I put the effort in to learn them when I did, because at the time it was super useful. Mm. And from 1998 to 2002, you were Moscow Bureau Chief for The Economist. Um, could you briefly describe what that role involved? And perhaps, as you've already mentioned, what are the consequences of um, your criticism of the Kremlin and Putin um, then and now? I should say first off that bureau chief is an Americanism and I had to call myself that because mm -hmm. I wasn't getting invited to things because they would say this is a briefing only for bureau chiefs and you're just a correspondent. And so I promoted myself to bureau chief but I was actually had no soldiers. Um, it was just in order to tick a box from a sort of American bureaucratic point of view that I would get to see um, the ambassador whenever I wanted. Um, I think, I mean, I had a wonderful time in Moscow and I, I love speaking Russian and I love um, hanging out with Russians and I particularly love going outside Moscow and travelling in the Russian provinces. It was really a um, most spectacularly interesting and uplifting um, experience. Um, and at the time, it seemed pretty safe there. Just as I was leaving, we had the first instances of intimidation. A friend's office got burgled, another friend got beaten up. Um, but it still seemed remarkably safe. But I was very conscious that the room for manoeuvre was shrinking, that when I arrived there was a kind of raucous, pluralist, very corrupt, um, very um, reprehensible in many ways media environment. By the time I left, all the news on all three channels was pretty much the same. So I'm glad I experienced the kind of, I wouldn't say quite freedom, but the sort of um, you know, the, the grotesque anarchy of the Yeltsin years, which had good sides as well as bad sides. Um, by the time I left, Putinism, it was pretty clear what Putinism was going to be like. And espionage and security are central themes in your writing. Are there any sort of anecdotes that stand out where you were face-to-face -face with um, things that I guess here in 
in Western countries, we struggle to imagine beyond what we see in James Bond films? Well, I think, I mean, certainly during the Cold War, um, spooks were pretty conspicuous. And I remember, you know, I'd obviously read all the John Le Carre books and so mm. on. And, um, but as soon as I started um, dealing professionally with Eastern Europe, I was, um, it, it, I suddenly realised these, these are real people. And I remember um, when I was a reporter in Northern Ireland um, having um, slightly trapped, rather meanly, a visiting a member of a visiting delegation to give me an interview and then started firing some rather tough questions at him. And a rather intimidating man who claimed to be from TASS turned up and demanded that I delete this um, this tape because he said, this isn't journalism, it's just intimidation. And, and I thought, golly, actually, you know, that's one of them. And and I also, you know, you bump into people from our side as well and think this guy isn't really a, the, you know, the vice consul. <laughs> He's interested in all this other stuff. And so they became real people. And over time, many of them became friends as well. And I started, you know, the people of my age who went into that business and we, um, you know, we all, various times people got married and had children, you know, godparents and all that sort of thing. So I... Um, I got to know that that world, um, sort of not just professionally, but in a way also socially. And I think it's become increasingly important because of the way the Kremlin is conducting this political warfare on the West, that everything they do has an espionage or subversion component, and anything we do to counter it um, needs one too. And speaking of the Kremlin, the Russia's announced that it will host its next presidential elections in March 2018. What sort of narrative do you think Putin is going to campaign with? And what do you th- how open do you think these elections are going to be, um, particularly in the case of someone like Navalny? Well, I would strongly caution you against using the word elections. That's already legitimising mm-hmm. them. I mean, I think there is a, you know, a piece of political theatre happening called um, election. But to me, a real election is one where you have some kind of... Um, openness in terms of who's allowed to take part and some kind of openness in terms of access to the media and to political resources and some kind of doubt about the result and all those elements are missing in Russia. Mm. So I um, I think that Putin has done a very good job in creating this sort of pseudo-democracy which looks enough like democracy that he can deflect criticism um, but doesn't actually um, threaten his control of the political country's political economic resources which is what it's all really about. No, thank you. I think it's useful to be reminded that the words that we use do really matter. On that same note, your book published in 2008 and recently updated, The New Cold War, uses that term and applies it to the situation today in Russia and Eastern Eastern Europe. And you argue that it's being fought on three fronts, so Ukraine, the Baltic states and espionage. Um, and you also argue that the West is losing this new Cold War without even realising that it started. Um, but that term's controversial, particularly when we start to engage historians. So how would you describe the new Cold War in your own words, please? Well, I make it very clear in the introduction, which many of my critics seem to have not quite got round to reading, that I'm not saying that the new Cold War is like the old Cold War. Mm-hmm. Russia's a lot weaker than the Soviet Union. The ideological confrontation is much less sharp. Russia's deeply integrated into many parts of the world economy, not least the financial system, in the way the Soviet Union wasn't. Um, so it's it's very different. But I was trying to attract attention, particularly then, back when I was writing this in 2007, when people were really very unwilling to believe that we had a serious problem with Russia. Now, 
Estonians and Georgians and Ukrainians and others have paid a very heavy price for our education. But I think we are now at the stage that most people in most Western democracies now believe there's something pretty seriously adrift in Russia and that it really matters for us. Um, I don't think we're, I wouldn't say I've won yet the argument, but um, what was regarded by the Foreign Office as crazy Edward Lucas talk in 2008 is now pretty much the mainstream approach of the British and, and other governments. And that's that we face this multi-pronged threat from Russia. It's not just the military pressure on the Baltic states. Um, it's also the targeted use of corruption, the use of um, intimidation against individuals, the energy weapon, economic pressure, use of legal pressure, whether it's through extradition warrants or lawsuits, um, the cyber attacks, both in terms of espionage and, and disruption, the exploitation of uh, linguistic, ethnic, religious, social, geographical, and other tensions. So that all these different things, and the Kremlin hops very quickly from category to category. We have quite tough professional, ethical, institutional boundaries in our system, so a spy is a spy, a journalist is a journalist, a businessman is a businessman, an academic is an academic, um, an energy trader is an energy trader. Um, in the way that Russia attacks us, one person can be, you know, all of those, one after the other, or sometimes at the same time. Mm. And so it's very hard for us to work out how to respond to this sort of Putinist threat without Putinizing our own societies. And I don't want to be in a, live in a place where, you know, MI6 tells the economists what to write mm. or the cabinet office tells Oxford what to teach or, um, you know, everybody has to work together to help BP get, get a contract. Um, that would be horrible, but we are facing an, uh, a country in which all those sort of things really do happen. And is this hostility between the West and Russia just a recurrent blip or trend in international relations? Does it teach us more about Russia or ourselves? I think that the biggest problem we face is the vulnerabilities that we've allowed to develop. If, if we had stayed strong and honest and united at the end of the Cold War, none of this would be happening. Mm -hmm. Nobody held a gun to our head and said, create an offshore financial system in which you can completely disguise the um, origin and flow of funds. Nobody said to us, uh, eviscerate the business model of your media so that they can't compete with um, you know, state-sponsored propaganda. Um, nobody said to us, create you know, alienated, hostile, miserable chunks of your society that will be um, easy prey for the Kremlin. And you know, during the Cold War, we worried about vulnerabilities and we tried to plug them. So yeah, that's one of the reasons we have a welfare state in Western Europe, mm. is that the Americans said, God, we better do something, otherwise all these poor people are going to vote communist. Um, and we've got much less good at doing that now. So, um, so I think that it's, and it's a very, your, your question makes it, it was a very profound and interesting point that what this really tells about, us about is the weakness of our democracy, rule of law, and economy, um, which Russia is exploiting. If we didn't have those weaknesses, Russia would be snapping helplessly on the sidelines, but um, it wouldn't be able to um, have the effect it does. And these weaknesses are increasingly being exploited in cyberspace and in the field of digital security. Your book, Cyberphobia, published in 2015, deals with this topic. But you actually say that you dislike the term cybersecurity. Could you please explain why this is the case? Well, I think cyber is just too broad a term. It's like looking at warfare entirely in terms of hardened steel. You know, hardened steel does play, or aluminium alloy or something. You know, it's, a, it's fundamentally, it's, 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 it's 
it matters because of what people do with it. And so the security of our computers and networks um, creates is, is, is quite weak. Um, we've allowed it to grow up over 30 years in a way that makes it quite hard to fix is this insecurity. And malefactors are exploiting it, whether they're spies, terrorists, criminals, pranksters, or, or whoever. Um, we can make life more difficult for them by improving our security, but we also need to think who is firing this hardened steel at us. Um, and in every cybercrime, there is a perpetrator and a victim. In every attack, there's a perpetrator and a victim. And I think we need to think much more about who's attacking us and why, rather than just saying we need thicker concrete because this hardened steel keeps on whacking into us. Mm. So you argue that um, so digital securities is a collective problem that we simply don't have the tools to, ta to tackle. And as you mentioned, most people are so bewildered by the terminology and the technology that we simply don't know where to start. Um, and in fact, your book made me quite paranoid about my own sort of technology practices. Um, and one of the solutions that you offer is an electronic ID system modelled on Estonian system. And in fact, you were their first e-resident. Could you please describe what's that like? Well, it's not a magic bullet, but I think that one of the problems we have is proving who we are online and knowing who we're dealing with online. Now, you're sitting here in my house, and I'm pretty sure you're Verity Bly, because I've met you before. And um, there's lots of things that help me know that you're, that, that you're the right person, and lots of things that help you know that you're in the right place. And on the internet, all that becomes a lot more difficult. Um, I don't know if a, if a website is really the website it's supposed to be. Um, I don't know if the person who's sending me an email is really the person they claim to be. And I think that what in jargon is called identity assurance is one important element of this, that if you have a way of signing something with a digital signature that um, means having a card that only there's only one of those cards in the world and I've got it, if I lose it I can instantly disable it. I use a digital um, a pin code to sign it that only I've got. If I forget that pin code, then the card is disabled and I start all over again. Um, I can prove to a very high degree of, of certitude to you that I'm me. I can send you a message that can only have come from me and also that can, only you can read because this is based on a public key infrastructure. So once I know your public key, I can encrypt it in a way that only your private key will decrypt. Um, and that is a, um, is a very useful um, sort of platform on which we can then build trust and trustful interactions that we need for the rest of civilization. Um, it doesn't solve all our problems. Um, I think there's still a huge problem about navigation and knowing whether websites are really what they claim to be, and I don't at the moment have an answer for that. But I think that at least if we start off with the individual identity question, um, we are making life a great deal more difficult for the people who are trying to cheat us and attack us. And digital attacks, because they're both anonymous and asymmetrical, are some of the biggest challenges facing governments today. Do you ever do you see a uh, future scenario where governments may respond with kinetic attacks, so uh, real world or military options? Yes, and that's already part of America's military doctrine. So I think it's highly likely um, that if you. If you were, and I, and I think there's a, there's a big danger here that what one side thinks is an attack may be seen by the other side as just reconnaissance. So you may be poking around at someone else's computer to find out how things work, and they say, "Hang on, someone's trying to attack us. We need to do something." And so there's a 
I think we have a huge need for to elaborate and um, improve our inter-nation state communication. We need hotlines and protocols and all the sort of stuff we had during the Cold War, which wasn't particularly good, but it more or less worked. Um, and we need to do the same thing in cyberspace. And it's going to be much more difficult because, whereas you can count warheads, they're sort of physical things, um, digital, the digital equivalent, so-called digital weapons, only work because you keep them absolutely secret. Um, so it's much harder to do sort of arms control discussions with them. And turning now to your role as editor at The Economist, um, I'm sure you're asked this question all the time, but could you please describe how your role has changed given the fake news um, phenomenon that's currently obsessing the media? Well, I think we've noticed, first of all, the um, when we opened online comments, how easily these were misused. And you can easily make an article look, and if you chuck a sufficiently controversial article onto the internet, sort of trolls on both sides just start you know, slagging each other off, and it's sort of amusing to watch, but I, I'm not sure it's very edifying. Um, we've always had fact-checkers at The Economist, so I'm, you know, I'm particularly proud of them now because they really, you know, it makes us stand out as a um, place where, you know, we still make mistakes, but for a mistake to get in, it's got to go through several pairs of eyes, and one of them's only job was to check is this factually correct. So I think we have a much lower instance of, of mistakes than other um, you know, many other outlets do. And we also, um, that means we have tremendous trust in our readers. And I think that trust is our biggest asset. You know, we, mm. you know, we own lots of computers. We used to own a building. We have some money in the bank and so on. But if you said, what's the real value of The Economist? It's that you know, more than a million people every week um, trust us with an hour of their time and trust that what they think is that what we print is, is, is actually true, is not only interesting, but also true. And you've argued that one of the ways to manage disinformation and to strengthen that trust is to deprivilege anonymity in journalism. So, for example, making sure that everyone is blue tick status on Twitter. Um, could you please describe what the consequences of that would be? Yeah, I'm, I'm not against anonymity. And if I'm running a human rights project in China or Russia or wherever, then I think anonymity is very important. Mm -hmm. And there are, it's entirely right sometimes to be anonymous, but I think that we need ways of proving who we are. So I like the um, anything that allows uh, a high degree of certainty that the person who just sent you an email really is that person um, is, uh, is 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 beneficial. And I think that we should privilege authenticated speech in free countries. I don't see. I think that Facebook should have something similar to Twitter and make and that, that should be really the default setting. And just as we don't, you know, I mean, we don't make a particular effort to go into the public toilets and read the graffiti on the walls, we shouldn't make a particular effort to go and um, look at the um, um, an anonymous comments that are made. And if something is, is a Banksy and is absolutely brilliant, well, then that's fine. But we, um, um, in general, civilised life depends on people standing behind what they say. And I think we should ex expect people on the whole to stand, to, you know, to give quite a lot of personal information, at least in order to get up on the platform. They don't need, I don't expect people to give me their you know, fingerprints and date of birth. But I want to know that at some point, they've said to someone, I'm really me, and that's been checked so that I can then think that's someone I want to take seriously. And you're a keen Twitter user. How has it changed your consumption of media, and is it compatible with good journalism? 
I mean, it's a time sink, and you have to be very careful. I ration myself. I basically only use, I try and tweet only when I'm um, waiting for something to happen. So if I'm in a traffic jam or something like that, then, um, I, um, but I, I try not to tweet when I could be doing anything else. Um, I think it's, a, it's a extremely... Um, I think for me, the two main things, it's a very good tailored news feed. And so I, I used to subscribe to Reuters, and when Twitter came along, I realised I didn't need Reuters anymore because actually Twitter pulls together all the stuff I'm interested in. Um, it's, a, it's a reasonably good secure messaging system, so people who follow me, that creates, and I always encourage people to direct message me on Twitter rather than to email me. Um, and it's a good, actually, there's three things, and it's a, it's a good way of, of promoting my books, and I see that when I want to get some traction, I'm lucky enough to have 70-odd thousand followers on Twitter and Facebook together. And so if I want to give someone a shout-out, um, say, buy Verity Bly's new book, it's absolutely brilliant, um, yeah, that makes a bit of an impact. And if, you know, even say, buy Edward Lucas's new book, it's brilliant, and that has an impact too. So it's a sort of useful soapbox. Um, I wonder if it's day... Yeah, I think we may be past the heyday of Twitter and other things may be taking over, but it's, it's certainly been jolly useful over the last 10 years. And so what do you see as the future of journalism? I think the, the real problem is finding the business model. And we are really lucky at The Economist that we've got a business model that really works. We're moving steadily away from the paper paper to the app, whether it's the iPhone or digital assistants. That provides a walled garden in which advertisers can be given one click. So you click on an advert, you get one extra page. It gives the advertisers tremendously um, precise knowledge of who's swipe their ads and so on, much better than we can provide when it's the paper economist and much better than banner advertising, which people basically don't click on. We've also hiked our subscription price considerably, and the reader, and there was obviously a lot of um, consumer rent we weren't extracting, so we found out we could pretty much double the price and maintain our subscription, so we obviously should have done it earlier. Um, and um, so we're in a pretty good position, and I think that is also going to be true for most of the upmarket um, purveyors of information in big language groups. So I think the Germans are going to be fine, the French are going to be fine, we're going to be fine, Spanish are going to be fine. If there was free Chinese media, they'd be fine. If there was free Russian media, they'd be fine. I think what's much more difficult is if you are in small and poor countries. And I think that's a real puzzle. How do you maintain that in a country like um, Moldova, mm. poorest country in Europe, couple of million people there, another couple of million abroad. How do you provide high quality media that isn't that you, that you need for democracy um, when it's so cheap and easy for oligarchs or hostile foreign governments just to come in and, and, and buy it? And I think that's a real puzzle. And reflecting on your career as a whole, you mentioned that you were interested in current affairs and international relations since being an undergraduate student. Where do you think that interest stemmed from? If I can correct you, I think I was interested from when I was about four, actually. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and my earliest memory is the Soviet... When I was six was the Soviet-led invasion of Czechoslovakia. And I remember asking my mother how someone had written something about Czechoslovakia on the wall and long wall in, um, in Oxford. And I used to walk on my way to school there when I was at uh, New College Choir School. And I'd never seen CZ written. I said, how do you, on earth do you pronounce this? What's, what's happening? And um, I remember my mother explaining why everyone was so upset. So, um, and my father, who was the philosophy tutor at Merton, was deeply involved in all sorts of 
academic freedom things during the Cold War, including running a major effort by the Oxford Philosophy Department to sustain an underground philosophy university in um, what in in Prague in the um, what's now the Czech Republic. Um, so I grew up with this stuff, mm. and so I was very willing to believe that as I reached adulthood, it was the most important thing to do. And I suppose the only thing that really differentiates me from a lot of other people who have fought the Cold War is that I didn't give up. And that was, I think, mm. so I was lucky enough to be living in the Baltic states as the Soviet Union collapsed. And amid the popping of the champagne corks, we could see all sorts of other troubling things going on. And that was you know, provided a crucial bridge between the, if you like, the old Cold War and the new Cold War. And for people who are current students like myself, who belong to a generation that cannot remember the Cold War, what would your advice be um, to get deeper involved in in this field of study um, and as a career as well? I think listen to the frontline states is my main, you know, talk to, um, and there's plenty of people around who, who do remember it, and there's lots of people who are still suffering as a result of um, Russian imperialism, so, you know, listen out for Georgians, Moldovans, Russians themselves, um, Ukrainians, um, Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians and others. Um, there's no shortage of... And when, when I was doing this back in the 1980s, this pre-internet era, and mm. you had to spend a lot of time in the library. Now you don't even need to... You, you just, most of what you need to know is actually on your on your phone if you know, know where to look. So I think... And I think reading the, um, yeah, the core historical documents is really useful. There's, um, you know, you know, there's some of those Cold War classics like... Um, you know, Solzhenitsyn, The Captive Mind by Czesław Miłosz, um, a kind of, I think, essential reading for everyone, but particularly if you're um, interested in the region. Um, <clears throat> I think also the um, modern cultural stuff coming out of the, I mean, novelists like Sophie Oksana in the Finnish-Estonian um, prize-winning novelist, who's a friend of mine. Um, so there's, I think there's, it, it's really a matter of keeping mental focus and remembering that the picture we see in the West is not necessarily the picture that people are seeing um, elsewhere. And that's mm-hmm. true, for, I think, for all, all IR, but we tend to have an extremely strange, both historical and geographical perspective on things. And I, I was just in, a, I've just come back from Washington, which is why I've lost my voice. And I was saying to the Americans who are now suddenly frightfully excited about what they call fake news and Russia and so on, I said, this is a bit like suddenly being, you know, in 1941, suddenly being terribly worried by the Luftwaffe. Mm. Um, this problem goes back years, you know, when you were warned, but you just didn't listen. And it's not just fake news, not just the Luftwaffe, it's a whole range of other things that Russia's doing as well. So the problem is older and broader than um, many people in the West think. And my last question flows on quite nicely from your recommendations. What are three books that have influenced you and your thinking and that you'd recommend to the audience? I think The Engineer of Human Souls, which is a novel by Joseph Skwaretsky, a Czech novelist, is, is, a, is a, a magnificent um, exploration of sort of Czechoslovakia um, and the sort of effect of communism on the, on the human mind. So I'd put that pretty high up. Um, I think the the captive mind by Czesław Miłosz, um, the Polish Nobel Prize winning um, poet, is um, is is very good. Um, I'm always a bit suspicious of these three lists. I mean, you'll, you go downstairs, you'll see <laughs> about five hundred 
books, all of which I refuse to throw away because they're all so important. Um, I think probably the third, I would say, um, one, of, one of Robert Conquest's books on the, on, the, you know, on the Great Terror. But that would be sort of three classics. I was going to three modern books, and I'd say the three books by my friend Anne Applebaum, Gulag, mm-hmm. um, Arn Curtin and Red Famine. Those are three sort of, you know, a trilogy. I, don't, I also think um, Timothy Snyder's books, um, mm-hmm. everything by Timothy Snyder yeah. is good, but Bloodlands is particularly, particularly important. Um, so that I've given you kind of eight instead of three. No, that's that's perfect. Um, and I definitely recommend to all listeners to read Edward Lucas's books, The New Cold War and Cyberphobia as well. Um, where can listeners go to find out about your books or to follow your thinking and your articles, please? Well, there's an advanced investigative tool which um, a small number of journalists mm-hmm. use about, but I'm very happy to share it with your readers, which is called Google. And um, if you go to Google, um, you can Google Edward Lucas, and that will take you immediately to my website, um, which has um, masses of stuff on it, including my podcasts and my bio. And the um, uh, my books are um, featured there as well. And my Twitter feed gives a pretty good minute-by-minute minute account of what I'm up to. Um, so it's not hard to find out about me. Edward Lucas, thank you very much. Um, and thank you for listening to The Beacon.